This is the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Robin Hicks. Why are people afraid of nature and does that fear affect humanity's desire to protect it? How real is climate anxiety and how can we learn to cope with it? On today's show, we're going to talk about how people relate to nature, where their fear and love for it comes from, and why our emotional connection with the natural world is so important for the survival of both people and planet. We record this show from Singapore, where there's been a recent public outcry over the clearing of forests for development. It's prompted many Singaporeans to question the city-state's stated ambition to be a city in nature. Joining today's podcast is Dr. Denise Dillon, an environmental psychologist from James Cook University Singapore campus. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Denise Dillon. Thanks. I'm really pleased to be here. Happy to have a chat. Absolutely. This is a fascinating topic. I've been really eager to get you on the podcast to talk about it um, after we first met recently. Now, first of all, tell us a bit about your work and the field of environmental psychology. Okay. Well, Firstly, I'm an academic with environmental psychology as my field of specialization. So in practice, environmental psychologists are relatively rare. So you might be interested to know that globally, there's only around about 1,000 researchers who identify partly or wholly as environmental psychologists. So in general, environmental psychology really encompasses an ever-growing variety of topics, but it's characterized by a number of particular goals and values. So mostly um, environmental psychologists would work together with people in other disciplines and to seek to improve stewardship of natural resources in the built environment, to study everyday settings and people's interactions in those settings, and to recognise that individuals actively cope with and shape our environments. We don't passively respond to environmental forces. We really are active agents in the whole process. That's fascinating. Um, a rare and really interesting field. Now, um, one of the reasons, as I mentioned earlier on, that we're talking now in the podcast is we met at an event quite recently that was basically about the preservation or conservation of a particular patch of woodland in Singapore. Um, yes. Now, part, part of that discussion that came out of that discussion, Denise, was um, something called biophobia, a fear of nature. And I want to talk to you a bit about our relationship with nature in the Singapore context. Um, but first of all, I want to ask you, um, why are people um, scared of nature? This is something that fascinates me because of my interest in biophilia. So let me just frame that. So fear responses are part of, they're part of our human DNA. We've got a fight or flight response that helps us survive. It's actually a good thing. And in psychological terms, that's biologically prepared learning. It wouldn't make sense for us not to be afraid of some things. And we can consider biophilia as a positive approach form of response where we go towards and we like things. And biophobia is the flip side of this. So it's a negative avoidance response to natural stimuli. So biophilia has been defined as the innate tendency for us, for humans, to affiliate with life and with lifelike processes, but the tendency can be lost through various um, reasons over time. And for some, the fear response becomes primary. Nature is associated with dangers or discomfort. 
And because it's a learned response, that can be passed along to children through modelling and other forms of social learning. So in cities and here in Singapore, I, I come across this anecdotally quite a lot that people, you know, relate to being afraid of letting their children get into nature. And then children themselves report, you know, they don't like ants, they don't like grasshoppers. And typically in children, they love these sorts of things. But here it's kind of a learned response to be, uh, I don't know if it's completely fear of nature, but certainly thinking that nature is uncomfortable, let's say. It's hot and, and bothersome. Um, that's interesting. It's an interesting contrast, isn't it? For, for example, somewhere like Singapore, which... Um, Again, to your point, anecdotally, I've noticed this as well, doing um, wildlife rescue. Um, we get a lot of callers that um, are, are literally petrified of not just things you'd ordinarily expect people to be scared of, like snakes, for example, but, but, but insects and pretty much everything. And, and to your point, is it because um, people live in the city where there is this natural disconnect between the natural world and um, the urban world? Another interesting question. And so the, yeah, do we protect nature because we love it or are we trying to get rid of um, unpleasant nature? So there is some evidence that humans prefer, what we think of as savanna-like landscapes if we're thinking in evolutionary terms. And so over millennia, our tendency has been to modify our natural environments to resemble that sort of landscape. So, for instance, public parks typically feature large trees, spreading canopies, spaced out across green lawns. You can see into distances um, and you can get some benefit from the shade there. So, from an evolutionary perspective, we haven't really lived in mechanised or urban environments like our Singapore city uh, for so very long. And so, evolutionary-based response patterns to landscapes really haven't had time to be modified by these new types of environments. So what we see is that environments are being modified by humans all the time according to preferences that come from our evolutionary past. So what we're protecting in that sense, and I mean very broadly and generally, is a preference for certain types of landscape. And so this creates a problem for those who want to protect very rare and sparse intact landscapes. And certainly if people see an intact forest as a source of danger or discomfort, they're less motivated to want to protect that. And they might instead, in, uh, you know, support arguments for development and any other kind of anthropocentric or people-centered needs. So we've always got these kind of contrasts in what we prefer really um, and truly and, and what we might think is aesthetically pleasing. So we're trying to recreate these aesthetically pleasing, safer types of environment that, and then we want to protect those. Let's go into a bit about um, how experiencing nature affects our mental uh, well-being, Denise. Yeah, experiencing nature is kind of broad because the types of experience range from just viewing nature to full sensory immersion in an outdoor setting. So if you think about nearby nature experiences, that can be something like viewing a tree from a window or visits to parks or gardens. Um, and that can lead even those minimal nearby nature experiences to higher levels of satisfaction, improved mood, a feeling of serenity. And some studies have even demonstrated benefits, including a reduced risk 
of developing dementia through daily gardening activity. In other studies, for those diagnosed with Alzheimer's, a study showed that people in those groups improved group interaction. They had reduced agitation and less wandering if those patients were allowed to be outside in the garden at different times of day. So even getting that immersion experience of the, the, you know, the solar differences across the day. So experiencing nature can provide stress reduction. It can provide cognitive restoration of directed attention. There, is, there are many um, documented benefits of the experience of nature affecting in a positive way, mental wellbeing. So you mentioned that it's really interesting that there is nuance in that experience, right? Um, I was just wondering whether people experience, say, a park or a garden in the same way that may, they might experience a forest. You know, Singapore, Singapore, um, where we're talking from, used to be the, the garden city, the city in a, city in a garden, and now it aspires mm. to be a city in nature. Um, mm -hmm. What does that mean for people's experience um, of nature, do you think? Uh if you, you say, well, do I experience a park in the same way that I experience a forest? My personal sense of that is no, I don't think so. For me, a park is a form of built environment. So even if a forest is a remnant or one that sprung up on previously cleared land, so think about, you know, the Cranji forest that was cleared recently and people were going, oh, no, but it's just scrubland. But to people who walk through there, it's still their forest experience. And the sense of that is a forest has something of the wild about it. Um, and that can prompt more of a biophilic or biophobic response that's stronger than to that of a park, which if you think about it is typically more of a tamed or restrained aspect. So that doesn't mean we can't get psychological benefits from nearby nature experiences in parks, but to me, those two experiences, a park versus a forest, are very qualitatively different in the sense that one has more a sense of the wild about it. Okay, um, I wanna ask you, Denise, about climate anxiety. Now, it's a lot, uh, much discussed topic of late. First, I wanna ask you about how real a danger to our uh, mental health is climate anxiety now. Yeah, this is a really interesting one. It's a fascinating area because lots of experts have made the point that one of the problems with climate change is that it isn't happening fast enough. And I mean this psychologically for humans. We've evolved to respond to clear and immediate danger. And climate change is one of those fuzzy concepts that people say, is it really happening here to me now? Maybe not. So Professor Dan Gilbert is a Harvard um, researcher and he's commented on this, so I'm really iterating his points, but he says, we respond to threats that have four properties. They, these are, they, the threat is intentional. It, it has some intent to harm us. It's immoral. There's something wrong about it. It's imminent. It's happening right now and instantaneous that I need to duck and dodge out of the way. If you think about it, climate change is none of these. So although we're now, you know, we see some challenges about, well, there's immorality because generations before us have contributed to climate change. But as for being imminent, millions of people are affected annually by droughts, by floods, by earthquakes, and millions more are displaced due to natural disasters. But droughts are not instantaneous. They can be years in the making. So it's not, you know, as I say, it's not happening fast enough to 
to be considered an imminent threat. And we know that floods and earthquakes have been happening and keep happening. So it isn't clear that any of these disasters are clear and present threats in the form of climate change. So really what we have to think of now is there's enough evidence to confirm that climate change is a human cause issue and we need to take precautionary measures to anticipate, to prevent or to minimise the cause of climate change and really to mitigate any adverse events, effects from it. But when you say, you know, is it a threat to our climate, um, to our anxiety? I think that's part of the problem that it isn't this immediate enough. We need to try and make it in some ways more immediate. Agreed. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons I brought that up is I was talking to a colleague yesterday who said they heard about someone that is cutting down on the amount of water they drink because they're mm -hmm. anxious about water scarcity uh, and, okay, and climate yes. change. Yeah. So, so that, that's where I was sort of coming from. And I thought that was quite scary, actually. I just wondered in your field, are, are people starting to talk about it in the terms of a real medical condition? And if so, what are the symptoms that we could look out for? I guess the same, same sort of symptoms, right? Of any other sort of anxiety or? I would think so. So I haven't, I haven't followed this because I'm not a clinical psychologist. And if you think of it, anxiety is more of one of those, um, yeah, it's a clinical kind of condition. But, and I think this is part of the problem that although people get anxious about particular things like that, because in Singapore, that is something that's more salient. So, you know, we pipe in a lot of water and if anything happens quickly, um, we could be out of water very quickly. But on the whole, if we talk about climate change, it's that fuzziness that prevents people from getting too anxious. And, and I think one of the groundswell things that have been happening now is that young people are becoming more anxious about it. So, uh, and I think that's a good thing, actually. Maybe they will drive some of this and maybe we could, you know, we could stand to be more anxious. Absolutely. We need that anxiety to, to take action, right, to your point. And yes, if, yes. We yeah. need the flight or fight response to kick in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because we're certainly not seeing that, um, many people would say, at a political level, right, even at a business mm -hmm. level, that, that isn't the level of action that we, we need to see at the moment. Um, any suggestions? Because... Um, Denise, so you, you do a thing called forest bathing, which is really interesting. You guide people through natural areas. Um, tell us a bit about that. And also, I, I guess my question was, how would you suggest that people try and cope with um, conditions like climate anxiety? Yeah, and so I think this is one of the things that we can in, encourage more of. So if we actually encourage people to get out and about in nature, then they get to realise and start noticing great things about nature and maybe uh, think about their place in the whole chain of being, the interweb of being, if you like, because if we just, you know, hide ourselves away in the indoors all the time, we don't know what's happening in nature and we don't feel a part of it. Whereas if we can come to places, and forest bathing is a real opening of the senses type experience. It's not about understanding what type of tree this is or what is that animal. It's really about sensing and noticing things, using our eyes, our ears, the tactile sense of how things feel um, to really come to that sense of nature is fascinating in its own and it can be just 
calming on the senses. And once people come to know that, perhaps they could start to feel uh, it's worth actually finding ways to protect nature and, and not being such a burden, I guess, on nature. So who are the sort of people you take uh, forest bathing? Um, uh, do you take sort of all ages, children included? Because um, something else that came out of our discussion was that um, in the education system, not just in Singapore's, but there's often that envir environmental piece missing um, that mm. kids grow up and they don't know much about the environment outside of science or geography classes. I have taken from as young as six to as old as, and I don't know exactly the age, but 80s. Um, typically, though, they're kind of um, middle adults, young adults and middle-aged adults. Um, it's, it's funny with children because if you try and get them into that sensory immersion, their, their attention wants to go everywhere. <laughs> and so you have to find particular invitations that are great for them. So if I'm with children, I try and make it a play-based experience. So we're noticing things, but we um, maybe create things out of leaves, uh, you know, being careful about what may be living under the leaves. It could be an ant condo, for instance. And we, you know, try and immerse them in those ways of thinking about the scale of tiny little things might be fascinating. Um, and for older people, it's actually quite okay as well because it's a very slow-paced um, experience. We're not hiking, for instance. We really are just moving through slowly. And the idea is to slow down because then you get to notice more. If you're hurrying through life, um, you're passing things by and, and not noticing what's there. Whereas if we slow down and just immerse ourselves in that experience, things can come to us without us really um, expecting that. It can be wonderful. So, I mean, that, the, the idea of forest bathing is not just... Um, uh, a mental health boost, right? It's about reconnecting people with nature. That's correct. For my for my focus and my my research interest is in nature connectedness and also environmental identity. So having that sense of we're not separated from nature. We ourselves are an animal, and so having part of our identity as connected with the nature around us. And so for myself, it really is allowing and encouraging people to reconnect because for a lot of people, they've kind of lost that sense. And when they come out, it's, it's almost like that. Oh, yeah, I, I'd forgotten what leaves felt like. I haven't touched a leaf in so long, which is such a shame. The final question for you, Denise, is, um, is about how hopeful you are, you are um, for the future. I guess, knowing what you do, you do about um, people's relationship with nature. Um, do you think that relationship is strong enough for us to gather the collective desire to want to, to want to save it? I think we're seeing a lot of desire. And if we think about Singapore in particular, so our very highly urbanised, high density living uh, environment here, and, you know, We've got this recent outpouring amount among the general public to protect the forests, um, but we're immersed in a number of double binds here. And when I say the double bind, that's you know when a person is confronted with two irreconcilable demands or a choice between two undesirable courses of action, for instance. So here we have on one hand many people voicing concerns about the you know the forest being cleared for development. 
But on the other hand, you've got others making arguments based on the needs of our ever-growing population. Um, and we've got so little forested area remaining, there's a concern that we'll end up with an entirely built environment, even if that does include manufactured green spaces. Is that what we really want? So I do have some concern. Um, some years back, I was very much pro the biophilic built environment because I thought, well, if we can have cities that include that, that's a great thing. But I'm, I'm leaning more towards we definitely need to conserve what we already have as well. And we have so little here. Um, the second point, we've also got a demand for access to green spaces. So people are now going out. So for the Dover Forest, the Clementi Forest, when the videos went online, unfortunately, that's now prompted people to go there because they want to go and see these beautiful spaces. So that's wonderful that people like them. But then we've got another competing demand, we actually need to conserve those green spaces for the wildlife that lives there. We've got non-human residents in those places and we're trampling over their homes. And so there's a concern that we actually might end up loving our remaining forests and the wildlife that lives there to death. So it, it is a problem. I, I like to be optimistic, but I, I'm worried at the same time. Good place to leave it. Thanks so much for joining the Eco Business Podcast, uh, Dr. Denise Dillon. Thanks, Robin. This podcast was hosted by Eco Business, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com, follow us on social media, or subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.